agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. It's wonderful to get to do the show between the two of us. I got Jay uh, a couple of weeks ago, and now and now it's you and me, Mike. Yeah, I, I'm uh, happy I can do this. Ken is away on something, and so I was uh, happy I could jump in here and be be a sub. It's nice to do the show with you, so I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it. And but before we get to it, Trey, I just wanted to first off say thanks to our newest sustaining supporter on Patreon, Billy. And thank you, Billy. We really appreciate your support. And as a Patreon supporter, of course, you get our midweek bonus show. And also when we have that new Discord group for supports, and that's really been pretty interesting. We actually have a number of different channels, a non-political channel, a, a channel where I can basically post dog pictures and uh, listeners can too. It's all <laughs> kinds of fun stuff. And Jay's jumped on there a little bit. There've been some good debates. So that's that's another benefit. If you're interested in any of that, of course, you guys all know what to do. Go to, go to patreon.com slash politics guys, and you can sign right up and learn all about it. And again, we really appreciate all of your help. And also, of course, there's my new podcast, which is not some people said, you know, is this like is Mike leaving the politics guys? No, not at all. Um, Politics makes me sick is just sort of a separate venture, kind of a way for me to do sort of, you know, Trey, what we do here, but in a shorter, more condensed format with just one person for maybe people who are slightly less political junkies or more pressed for time. And so I've done now three episodes and they run somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. And anyways, that's, that's what I shoot for. And, uh, it is now up on Apple podcasts, which of course is the 800 pound gorilla of podcasting. And it's also on Spotify. So pretty much everyone should be able to get it at this point. And because it is a new thing, I would really appreciate any feedback, the positive or negative people can give me. And, you know, you can always reach me at Mike at politicsguys.com with that. So thanks very much. Now, that's a lot of fun. And, and again, thanks, Billy. But now, since we are political scientists, I mean, because we have a Billy supporting us now, do we get him any Billy beer? Like, does he get a special? I mean, um... Wow. Yeah. That's just show, showing, but not showing your age, showing, showing our knowledge of, of political history. That's what that is. Yeah. yeah exactly. Well, that and the Simpsons. I mean, the Simpsons make a joke about uh, Homer. He finds Billy Beer actually in his jacket one day, uh, which is one of my favorite jokes of all time, because nobody, you can always detect, is this a room of political scientists or not? Because they will pass that over and wonder what in the world. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Oh, wow. Well, speaking of weird things, uh, Mike, I thought I'd take you by surprise a little bit. And I'm going to ask you, this is this is a personal question, but I'm going to do it on the show. Uh-oh. And it's this, have you, have you ever fa- found yourself after talking with somebody, maybe being interviewed, have you ever found yourself on a bed on your back tucking your shirt in? I was ju- just purely hypothetical. <laughs> That I got, I gotta say that that's a unique. Style. I cannot say I've ever found myself exactly in that situation. <laughs> you know, I, I start uh, with that, Mike, because I feel like the Rudy Giuliani in a bet. It kind of sums up a little bit about how I'm go. feeling in politics at the moment. Uh, as we as we lead up to, I just kind of feel like <laughs> we've gotten we've gotten too comfortable <laughs> with that. Yeah. 
Oh man. Oh now gosh. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I just <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. So listeners, that's yeah. all I have on that. I mean, because what else do you say about <laughs> Borat? Besides, I mean, it is Friday. It came out today, and I have never actually wanted an Amazon subscription until now. Um, there you go. <laughs> but I do. On the real, the real first topic, of course, was uh, last night's debate. And I know this is something that we kind of share, Mike. But I kind of wanted to start. There was an NBC. Um, both after the show and then they had had a actually a really big headline and this is everywhere i mean i'm i'm poking at nbc here only because it was the first one that i saw uh, but the headline was this quote who won the trump biden debate experts grade the candidates and what i was really kind of shocked and and a little bit saddened by uh, was there were all of these communication scholars who were grading the candidates you know were they empathetic enough did they and I, 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 that whole idea that we're going to somehow at the end of a debate have some kind of, of grade. And I, I was a little disappointed to see some fellow faculty members, uh, both communication and political communication, you know, not just uh, kind of accidentally being thrown into it, but actually offering, as they called it, quote, report cards, end quote, on both candidates. And that seems to be the thing here for the third debate. And so I'd like to talk just for a minute and get your thoughts to start with. I mean, what do you think about the, I mean, I know, but what do you think about this horse race narrative, this, this need to grade candidates as if, as if somehow it's, it's a punching match and we're trying to decide who's going to come up with the most points at the end, even though nobody gets knocked out. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's more a need to generate news stories out of something that doesn't matter very much at all. And this year is going to matter even less, especially this this second and final debate, because already by the time Donald Trump and Joe Biden took the stage somewhere around 47 million Americans had already voted. And to put that in context, that's nearly one third of the total voter turnout from 2016. And so it's going to be almost certainly at least 20, 25% of the t- turnout this year. So we all know, I mean, we both know, Trey, as political scientists, that debates, presidential debates, just don't really matter much at all. And, but, you know, that's not, there's not much of a story there. And of course, if you call up some, you know, some poor starving political scientists and say, would you like some media attention and give this grade? You know, they're going to jump at it. There's going to be some of them. But yeah, I think it's pretty, a pretty ridiculous sort of thing. The only grade that matters is among people who maybe will change their vote or more likely will reluctantly vote for one over the other. And, you know, I know on the show we've said repeatedly, we talk about how debates don't matter from the point of view of political science. And I, and I think for listeners, you might think that one way of seeing this is, is it means that what people say or what they think don't matter. And, and I, and I want to kind of clarify what you're saying, because what we mean as political scientists in this case is, is that most people, the vast majority of voters, they're not voting on the basis of kind of these complex discussions of positions or what uh, candidates think. And so even if we ran this, you know, two months ago, we would still be predicting that this isn't going to be the case because that's not the way people are patterned to vote. I, I'm not putting any words in your mouth, I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> no, no. It, it, in fact, I, you know, I'd add that the people who 
follow debates most closely and carefully are almost invariably the people who are the strongest partisans. So there's that there's that kind of correlation between your your ideological, the strength of your ideology and your extent to which you follow politics. So they they, they matter the least for the people who watch them the most closely in, in a certain way. I, that's true. And because and the, the higher level that you have of affiliation, the party party, that is, in fact, your largest predictor for both voting and for whom you're going to vote. So so kind of turning away from that horse narrative and, and putting the debate in its proper place, you know, before the debate, the Trump campaign had actually protest the topics and the questions, arguing that it really needed to focus on what it had set out to focus on, which was foreign policy. And so I kind of have two questions for you on Mike. But the first one I want to say was, you know, for the debate that really was supposed to be foreign policy, it seemed that that probably got 40 percent of the uh, airtime or so. Do you think that's a bad thing? What did you think about the actual kind of the questions themselves? I wanted to start there. I think that the issues that were the question topics, the general areas were reasonable. And I think if I were the Trump administration, I would definitely want more on foreign policy because that's, I think, where Donald Trump has the strongest case to make for reelection. And certainly, you know, I mean, the debate started with uh, the focus on COVID because, you know, over 200,000 deaths. And that's exactly where Donald Trump is the weakest. And of course, he's going to, he would rather, if he wrote the questions, it would all be, you know, uh, foreign policy and and Hunter Biden's laptop, I guess. But, you know, that's to be expected, I think. Do you think, and I, I was trying to ask myself as I watched and as I kind of got done and I was kind of thinking, one of the things I do when I'm trying to prep for the show or I'm trying to prep for a school is I try to write down my thoughts immediately after I'm watching something. And one of the questions I had for myself in advance was, did I learn anything new from the debate? And so I want to kind of pose that to, uh, to you, Mike. Do you think at the end of the debate that there was anything new that you gained? So you thought, I didn't know this about Biden. I didn't know this about Trump, positive or negative in a more kind of a content specific way rather than that somebody won or you know got a punch in. Well, I, I think because I follow this so closely, I can't say there's anything actually new that I learned, but there were a few from from Joe Biden, some policy positions that I think he he emphasized in a way I, I wasn't necessarily expecting him to. Like, for instance, on immigration, he said within 100 days, he's going to send uh, to Congress legislation about a pathway to citizenship for more than 11 million undocumented people. So that was a pretty bold, straight ahead statement or his statement that he's on energy net. He's been sort of trying to walk back a little bit about uh, about uh, how, do you, how do you call it? Not turning away, but uh, moving away from fossil fuels, right? And so, you know, that I think was a, a statement that he maybe wishes he had put in a different way, perhaps instead of doing that, emphasize the roughly $20 billion a year in tax breaks and subsidies that go to, you know, uh, that go to uh, what he called big oil. But uh, so that those two things, I think, were were notable to me. And also he really emphasized that he plans on putting a or hopes to put a public option into uh, into Obamacare if he's if he's elected. You know, it, it's always I like that question in part because it, it's curious to me how different people see it. For one of the items that I saw as being big. Uh, was Biden's willingness to say I was wrong about something? And I wondered if that had stuck with you as yeah. well. You mean on the crime bill? Yes. Yeah. 
yeah, he, uh, I mean, he, he kind of has to, I think, in a, in a way. And I, I understand the critique from the right. And this is, you know, something Jay has said before that, well, Joe Biden will be whatever, whatever he feels like he needs to be in order to win. And so in the early 90s, it was tough on crime. And but, but I think the other way and the way I view it is, you know, I was around, I was an adult during that time and following politics very closely. And this was sort of in the very immediate aftermath of what's been called the crack epidemic. And there were major problems with crime. And a lot of people were freaked out. Now, looking back in, you know, 20 plus years in hindsight, we can see that this was an overreaction. And I, I think that a lot of Democrats, including Joe Biden, recognized that this was an overreaction. And I'm glad that he's saying, yeah, we we shouldn't have been we shouldn't have passed laws. We shouldn't have set up an environment where people are going to, to jail for nonviolent drug crimes. And so I would hope that all politicians can take a look at their record and and admit that they made mistakes on things when it's pretty clear that they have. I agree. And I mean, it, one of the things for me that I think that kind of highlighted, and I've thought about this myself, like you've noted, kind of this long game when you're looking at candidates who have been in the public sphere for a long time. It is, I think, the knee-jerk reaction that we don't want to, you know, a flip-flopper, right? Somebody who's not going to change all the time. Although I think, ironically, Donald Trump in some ways has been able to <laughs> uh, avoid that because he he changes and and changes so rapidly. We're going to talk uh, next a little bit about his tape and, and uh, some of that as well. But I do thought I do think that for me it kind of solidified what I liked about Joe Biden that he was willing to just kind of lay out on the line. Hey, in a long way, in a thoughtful way, it's possible to say I've done something and that's that wasn't the best policy outcome. And it was something, you know, way back when we saw with Mitt Romney, too, uh, who also yeah. got a little bit hammered on that, when his, you know, his evolving stance on abortion, uh, which could also just be seen as somebody who has thoughtfully thought about something and is making a change, which is different than, you know, just tweeting four things in succession that are, that are contradictory to one another. And so for me, that was kind of a, a big moment. Um, yeah. And, and maybe I'm more sympathetic to that, Trey, because I've changed positions on a lot of things over my adult life after thinking about them. And and so I'm actually I actually worry about anyone who goes through their entire life in politics and doesn't make any sort of significant changes. That makes me think that they're subscribing to what's more like a a, a, a cult or a religion rather than a, a political party. And that that I think is is a bigger concern. Well, and, and, you know, this is kind of, again, pushing into thinking about Trump, but it's also this attachment uh, to people. Because, again, <clears throat> I don't know how much I want to I hammer on this because I think we, we probably agree maybe a little too much. Sure. Um, but, again, you know, this is something that uh, Jay and I had uh, argued about a couple of weeks ago for our, our uh, bonus show where we had... Uh, you know, two guys on the right taking a look, one me, why we're looking at for Biden and, and uh, why Jay is going for uh, Trump. And if you and if listeners haven't listened to that, I, I highly recommend doing that. Uh, but I agree with you because I, th I think in part it has taken us away from thinking about the uh, the actual issues even more so into just saying, well, I'm with this person regardless of yeah. what the specific positions are. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, definitely. I I I, I, see, I, I totally agree on that. Yeah. You know, there was there was another thing. I don't know if you noticed this, Trey, but it, it seems to me that that I noticed sometimes during the debate where I felt that President Trump's uh, well, his own media bubble really ended up hurting him because it seemed clear that he wanted to make a big deal over this this scandal or proto scandal or whatever you want to call it with Hunter Biden's mm-hmm. laptop and China and all that sort of thing. Which again, you guys but, dealt with last week, but yeah. Yeah. But he, but he spoke about it in a way that it, it would make perfect sense to anyone who has a subscription to the New York post and watches a ton of Fox news, but that's not who he needs to, I don't think necessarily reach at this point. And so I think the fact that the president seems incredibly reluctant to associate or expose himself to anything that is contrary to his worldview really hurts him when he's in a situation that he potentially has to try to expand his base to win an election. That's just not a strength of his. And I think that really became obvious during the uh, during the debate, because I think that even though I believe that the, the Hunter Biden case is is sketchy at best it's like what what's the charge this week but but even so i think a, a much stronger more, more cogent case against joe biden could have been made but donald trump just wasn't in a position to make it because i don't think he understands what people who live in the real world know and don't know because his world is not even fox news because apparently they're too far left for him now that's oann and and uh you know all those kind of things and that's you know a larger point here and i think you'll agree is presidents have this tendency to get into this bunker mentality and my sense is that the presidents who are the most insecure are the ones who are uh, who are likely to go deeper into the bunker. And, you know, Richard Nixon comes to mind as, an, as another great example of that. And that's almost always a mistake, I think, in the longer term. I'm glad you bring that up, because one of the things I saw as I kind of parsed the debate was the difference between a man who has read and a man who does not read. Mm. And, you yeah. know, when you talk about that bubble... And I, I, I mean, I'm obviously that's a there, there's a bit of a criticism of Trump, but I also want this in a larger way to be a criticism of. I think it's simply a shortcoming that we're experiencing when you talk about well, how do you get out of that bubble? And I think one of the ways you have to get out of that bubble is by reading and reading widely in ways that I don't think that Donald Trump is comfortable with doing. I mean, explicitly so. I, I think that's the problem. As and I will point. I did not agree on a lot of things with President uh, Barack Obama, but I don't know if you remember, it was about two years into Barack Obama's term, and he came off Air Force One, and he was holding um, a book, uh, The Post-American World by, um, I'm going to blank on the author all of a sudden. Right? I, I, yeah, me too, actually, so... Anyway, and he's I holding- have more of an excuse than you do, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so he's holding the book and there's a photograph of it. And as a matter of fact, I don't agree with uh, the I've read the book myself. I think that there are some problematic elements to the book, but he really got hammered on the right. How dare he be reading something with the title post-American in it, meaning because obviously that means that he's some kind of evil anti-American. And what I, what I couldn't help but thinking when that was the big charge was, I, whether I agree with him or not, I want a president who's going to read things and encounter things that he disagrees with or finds wrong. I, I would like yeah. for him to be holding things 
that I don't agree with and he doesn't agree with, whether even if I know yeah, he agrees yeah. with it or not, because I want him to be experiencing that. And I think that's what we saw in part when you're talking about yeah. this bumble effect is that's the difference between a Joe Biden or a Barack Obama. Again, I don't agree, didn't agree with the policies, but I can at least respect that he's looked at these alternative views and he reads and looks at them. Yeah. I, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier uh, before we recorded. But one of the ironies seems to me that one of the grand ironies of, of Donald Trump is that so many people who I think are strong Trump supporters believe in this idea of tough, resilient Americans who can take a shot and have thick skins and aren't kind of whiny complainers. And They're yet not snowflakes. I, I again, you know, I, I cannot think of a president since Richard Nixon who nursed such a sense of personal grievance. I've never known a billionaire uh, or a reported billionaire who the world has just so regularly and horribly wronged. It, it's just, it is the most unmanly, uh, unresilient, whiny performance I, or, you know, I've seen by a president again since Richard Nixon. And I think, oh, I, I don't really understand the cognitive dissonance that goes into people who say, oh, Donald Trump is tough. You know, to me, he's, he is he is such a weak man. And I don't understand how more people don't see that, regardless of what they think about his policy positions, such as they are. Well, and you know, since we've kind of moved in that direction, I think the the second big story that we were going to take a look at, Mike, was this week the White House did something a little bit unprecedented. Uh, and they released an unedited clip, uh, a little bit over 30 minutes, with Leslie Stahl from 60 Minutes. And the, the purpose was to show how mean and horrible Leslie uh, had been to the president, how uh, bad and unfair his questions were. And I know that both of us had, had watched. I, I've watched it in its entirety. I, I know you did, too. And we both talked about how that wasn't going to be um, particularly easy. But kind of beyond that, right, this, uh, for those who haven't seen it yet, um, if, if you can get through it, Uh, It begins with Leslie Stahl kind of almost jokingly asking the president, are you going to be ready for some tough questions? And immediately, President Trump, you can kind of see he's that's kind of got his his dander up. He's he's upset about this. And he's saying, well, you don't ask everybody tough questions. I saw your interview and it begins kind of contentiously. And then by by the time you get to the end of the 34 ish minutes, uh, he's once again going back saying, you told me at the beginning we were going to have these tough questions. And of course, they were tough. Uh, and this is hard. It, it kind of gets to your um, issue. But of course, the, the first question that he got was basically, what would you do if you're elected? <laughs> yeah. Which, so what, and, what did you think and, about that tape, that question? Because it kind of rolls into what you were saying there about yeah. uh, you know, yeah. the inability of, of President Trump to kind of be that version of it kind of rolls off me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in terms of his his plans, it's clear he's not a policy guy, right? I mean, it was pointed out on I think Joe Biden at the debate made the made the quip about how yeah, I guess we'll see your pre-existing conditions plan around the same time we see your infrastructure plan. I mean, that's just <laughs> not who Donald Trump is. But but yeah, you know, in one sense, this is going to sound weird. In one sense, I actually feel for Donald Trump because I don't think he understands in some fundamental way that. It's different if you are a sitting president, you're going to get tougher questions because you're the president of the United States. And so you have to handle the tougher questions. And maybe that's not fair, but that comes with the job. You now have a record that you have to defend. And 
just like you're happy to crow about, if you're any president, a great economy, regardless of to what extent you're responsible for that. And as you and I both know, presidents are a lot less responsible for the economy than they'd like to admit when it's good. Right. <laughs> and uh, but but, I, you know, I just don't think he understands that or he's willing to accept that. And that comes through clear. So, yes, I agree with, in part, his premise that he does get tougher questions. And I think that's because he's the president. Every sitting president should get tough questions. That's why, you know, Trey, I'd love to see uh, like a like they do it in uh, in Great Britain, that question time where the prime <laughs> minister goes. before. I, I think that would be such a healthy thing for presidents to just have to get you just have to on a regular basis, take just super hostile questioning and just sit there and take it and respond to it, because I think that either builds character or shows character. But I think it's a very valuable thing. I'd love to see that. No, and that would. But you know, maybe I'm taking it a harder stance here. I don't think that he had particularly difficult questions. The beginning of that interview, Mike, for me, as I was watching it, all I could think of was it would be like going into a job interview and not being ready for the the easy first. Well, well why did yeah. you decide to apply to work here at Oklahoma Christian? I'm yeah. Like, well, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I've been a wonderful professor in Daytona. Okay, but. <laughs> Yeah. Why do you want to come here? Do you like our weather? Uh, well, that's a tough question. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it strikes me yeah. as odd on that level that you wouldn't be well, willing to say, well, I have these four things. I have these three things. E even if it is, I, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to pursue charges against Hunter Biden. At least just that's the thing that I'm going to do. It, it's straightforward. There it is. Um, what, what, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I really felt like he got particularly hard, difficult questions um, from Stahl. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't get the sense that he prepares for much of anything. He just sort of, you know, watches a lot of media and sort of goes with his instincts. And I think, you know, in 2015 and 2016, those kind of basic instincts happen to just key into a unique moment in American history and rose, you know, lifted him to the level that he's at. But those those same instincts are just that not nearly enough to be an effective president. And you know, we've seen incompetence from his administration from day one, and and that you know that rests at his feet just because that's not who he is. And I think of anyone who would be upset about that, it would be conservatives who felt like here we have a chance to you know get through so many policies and do so much good, and yet. This guy keeps on stepping on his own well, feet, you know, and then getting in, getting in his own way. And thank God for Mitch McConnell, who's keeping his head down and just, you know, and just rotating the judges through as quickly as possible. Yeah. Well, speaking of judges, I think this kind of uh, maybe might take us forward to our third story, which was this week, the Supreme Court ruled, as a matter of fact, on the 19th. In a weird 4-4 split, uh, and this is an order without uh, any kind of comment, so we don't know why, but what they ended up doing was rejecting a Republican bid to reinstate uh, Pennsylvania's requirement that ballots arrive by 8 p.m. on Election Day, even if the ballots lacked uh, uh, legible postmark they were mailed by um, Election Day. So to kind of set this up for listeners, if you haven't queued into this story and the noise that's been going on, uh, what occurred was that there was a lot of issues in Pennsylvania worrying that uh, there's going to be issues with the Postal Service. Uh, and so um, 
the Democratic secretary for Pennsylvania, uh, argued that that deadline needed to be increased. There was some talk that it should be seven days, um, but makes the case to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania grants a three-day extension. Uh, and and the, one of the big sticking points was that they went further and said that any ballot received prior to that November 3rd uh, new deadline would be considered valid even if it didn't have a postmark. Uh, and then Republicans were challenging that at the Supreme Court level. So I'm curious what you think about this one, Mike. Do you agree with the Democrats on this and with the uh, the 4-4 Supreme Court? I, I agree with Chief Justice Roberts uh, on this, who voted with the three liberals on the court. Yeah, you know, one thing I was curious about was Pennsylvania state law and mail-in ballots. And so I looked at that. There was an interesting provision I found on military mail-in ballots, these overseas ballots. And uh, Pennsylvania state law says that, uh, uh, let's see here, if, if at the time of completing a military overseas ballot and balloting materials, the voter has declared under penalty of perjury that the ballot was timely submitted, the ballot may not be rejected on the basis that it has a late postmark, an unreadable postmark, or no postmark. This was passed in 2012 by a Republican-controlled Pennsylvania legislature and signed into law by a then-Republican governor of the state of Pennsylvania. And so immediately I thought, well, gee, that sounds an awful lot like a double standard then, because uh, now, now Jay raised a point in the Discord group, don't military ballots come from further out? And I said, yeah, that's that's a reasonable point to raise. But it seems to me that the intent behind the military ballot law that Pennsylvania passed, that Republicans in Pennsylvania passed, was we should we should try to count every legitimate ballot. And we should presume that ballots that come in, even if they're a little bit late, are valid unless there's reason to believe otherwise uh, what the, I believe the the ruling in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was a unless a preponderance of the evidence demonstrates that they are late. And so I think it just makes sense on that grounds. I also think it makes sense on the grounds of judicial uh, uh, of judicial restraint, because the Supreme Court has a long history of deferring to state courts when they're ruling on their own state constitutions. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, in this case, ruled on this based on the Pennsylvania's uh, state constitution's guarantee of, I believe it's free and free and equal elections clause in their state constitution. So I think that the judicial activism here is on the part of the four real conservatives on the Supreme Court. And once again, even though I find myself disagreeing with Chief Justice Roberts on a lot of policy issues, I feel that he is doing his best to play fair, I guess you could say, on this. And I think he made the right call along with the court's three liberals. So what about the argument effectively? I mean, so one of the reasons for heading to the United States Supreme Court was that there's a const- there's a national constitutional question here, which is, you know, Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution states, quote, the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Um, and the only kind of addition to that, of course, comes in the following clause where it talks about Congress being able to make um, by by law, uh, alterations to that, except for in the case of senators. So in this case, you mean you have the, it appears to be the, the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court, while they're ruling and maybe doing something that's pragmatic, uh, is, it wasn't what was the, at least the, the, uh, the legal past law from the state legislature. So what do you feel about that? Um, yeah. That, that, no, that disconnect I, I there. That, that- 
I think that's an important point to raise. And this isn't an easy case. This isn't an obvious sort of thing. And I think that's why, you know, uh, the uh, court was briefed on this, I believe, on October 6th. And it took, you know, almost two weeks for them to issue their ruling because this isn't an easy case. I think there are reasonable arguments on both sides. And where I come down on this and where I, I guess that the court three liberals and, you know, chief, the chief justice came down on this was, well, you know, does it make sense to for the court to, if, if we're undecided, to do as little as possible? Should we pursue a more activist or a more restrained response to this? And number two, maybe this is maybe animating the court's liberals a little bit more. Should we operate under the presumption that we should try to count as many as possible, even if a few slip through that shouldn't? Or should we operate on the presumption that we should try to have absolutely none get through, even if that means a few legitimate ballots aren't aren't counted? And so I think there are a lot of these factors that have to be weighed. And I don't think it's coincidental, Trey, that it seems like uh, the if you're a Democrat, you tend to believe that, well, count every vote, even if a few get through, because, well, just coincidentally, that helps Democrats probably a little bit, you know, and if you're a Republican, just the opposite. The rainy day turnout. Well, so on the on the side for Pennsylvania, though, so you, you I liked the kind of the, the case you made. You could say, well, look, the Supreme Court needs to to be restrained and in essence to defer uh, to the state Supreme Court. Do you worry, though, that in the state Supreme Court's decision that effectively that they had granted themselves a power that's really designed for the legislature. And, and the reason I ask this is, you know, right now we're, we're talking about filling that ninth seat. And I think we're undergoing a question and we do this periodically. So I don't want to make it sound like this is, is, is new, but we're, I, I think we're in a, in a moment where we're trying to decide what should be the role and scope for courts. And at least yeah. at a state level, it appears that many state Supreme Courts are kind of operating under the assumption that they need to rectify the problems of legislatures in their states. And this seems yep. to be kind of a good test for that. Uh, so on that front, where, where, where do you fall? Because I think I'm a little bit more, I'm a little more leery of the courts wanting to take on a role where they are, in this case, we're not having a, a conversation about their interpretation of law or, you know, a constitutional textualism versus, you know, pragmatism, but rather in this case, more of a, a countervailing weight to what they see as being shortcomings in state legislatures, especially regarding pandemic issues. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that both at the state court level and at the federal court level, that uh, the a lot of things that we see coming out of courts are a result of legislatures that the democratically elected branches not doing their jobs. Because if you in many of these instances, because there's some vague thing or something that the legislature hasn't ruled on or passed the buck on. And so now courts have to rule on it when someone brings suit. You know, the biggest thing that comes to mind starting the elect all the election things would be, for instance, DACA. Right. I mean, that's, you know, a huge, a, a huge issue. And, and so. I think this just, you know, Congress and legislatures in general want it both ways. They don't want to have to do their job and make tough votes and actually, you know, pass laws. But uh, then they also you know, want to blame the courts when they don't. It's, it's like it, it's like it's like in, in a sport. If you have this vague rule saying that, well, you know, a, a player is out of bounds when he looks out of bounds and yelling at the officials, you know, when they don't call your guy inbounds or out of bounds, will change the rule. And so I really that really just sticks in my craw, you know, and I really feel that that legislatures are just doing a poor job of of actually acting and doing their job and doing what they're paid for. 
I won't, you know, on a lot of parts, I'm not going to disagree with you there, Mike. I do think that, and this goes back, there's, you know, the, fam- our, the famous um, uh, political science, David Mayhew, who argues that legislatures, we, we can model them by primarily just understanding them as being interested in re-election, uh, not obviously in passing legislation. But in this particular case, I mean, the legislature did, in fact, you know, have a rule, albeit one that was probably disenfranchising to some, in place. So it, I'm not sure, does, does, does that particular view fit in this particular case, you think? Or, do you, or is, that, is that something maybe you're seeing more widespread, but not here? Because it feels here, at least, I mean, one might disagree with what the rules had been from the Pennsylvania legislature, or seen them as short-sighted, or, or see them as bad. Uh, but it, it was at least, you know, the, the question here wasn't over vagary of, of a state statute. Rather, it was over a question about the, the ability of the court to add on um, to what had been the, the legislature. So how do you think that fits here in this particular instance? I'm curious. Yeah, I think the, I think the vagueness here is over the, uh, was it free and, free and fair elections? In the, that again, in their state in the, yeah, constitution. Yeah. And, and because this is such an extraordinary situation, we were seeing, you know, a lot of last minute things happening and and it seems reasonable again. And I think that this is this is maybe not the best case study for this it, just because it is such an extraordinary situation. But uh, but, but again, it, it seems to me odd that there would be that that Republicans in Pennsylvania now, maybe not all the same Republicans, but that Republicans in, in Pennsylvania would have one standard for military mail-in ballots, and and this is pre-pandemic, and a very, very different stance on non-military ballots. And maybe that's, I would be willing to bet that the military vote is probably predominantly Republican, but I think that they should they should explain that. If, if you're going to reverse that standard, then let's see them pass something to, to reverse that for military overseas ballots as well. And maybe I would, uh, maybe I would stand up and, and be a little more respectful of what, that, what they're trying to do then. If it was more blanket in that case, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, as, as we're talking about these kinds of cases this week, we also had the uh, Supreme Court ruling on Alabama. Uh, and in this case, they're going to let Alabama ban curbside voting in the November election. And that happened on Wednesday. Um, in this case, this is a 5-3 decision, uh, and so in this case, the, the Chief Justice did not end up siding with the liberals, but in, ended up siding with conservatives, uh, arguing that it is uh, not a violation uh, of state law for the, the, the ban. What do you think about this, and does that fit into this narrative that we're talking about in the case of Pennsylvania, or do you think this is a little different? Yeah, well, you know, I... I think this is an interesting case in that the one of the arguments is that this actually violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. And in fact, Correct. this was this was something that was a trial at the district court level. And that's that's how this came. That's how this came about. And so it, it seems to me that there's something to be said for uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissent, where she said, well, basically, you know, we're, we're substituting our sort of on the spot judgment here based on the work that the district court did. And of course, by the time this works its way through the system, right, the, the, the entire legal process, the election will be over. And so my question, again, it kind of does tie in because I ask, well, where is the potential for irreparable harm? And I would argue that the harm is greater in the sense of not allowing or, or in, 
inadvertently or maybe inadvertently, some people would argue, disenfranchising people who, for a reason of disability, COVID-related or otherwise, can't vote. And I should point out, too, that this isn't a mandate. This, this lower court ruling wasn't a mandate that there be curbside voting. It just simply said that it could be considered a reasonable accommodation for local jurisdictions that want to do it. So if you're if you're a county that can't do that for whatever reason, resource reasons or something else, then you don't have to do that. That's that would be an unreasonable accommodation. So I I would have I would agree with the with the court's three liberals on this for those reasons. Well, I'm curious what you thought on that. I actually, in this case, where I was more sympathetic uh, to the Pennsylvania legislature, I saw this as being kind of a more problematic ruling, specifically for the reason you were arguing, which is it was not a universal mandate, but rather the opportunity uh, for this to happen. And I, and I think it's pretty easy for those who are abled to see this as not a big deal uh, in a way that uh, those who are not uh, w- w- would feel differently. Um, you know, here in our department, for example, um, we have a couple of different faculty members uh, w- with different kinds of needs. And it is, it is deeply frustrating uh, on my front when we deal with, so for instance, uh, we have learning management systems. And so Mike, you're immediately going to know what I'm ta- <laughs> uh, sure. talking oh, about. Yeah. But this is the way that we interact with students digitally. And many of them are not accessible ready on the faculty side. Uh, and so I, I think that this probably seems less uh, problematic for those of us who don't don't have maybe some of those encounters or, or um, yeah. have those in their I, circles who, who who face those kinds of uh, of issues. I, I guess I'll, I'll say that maybe the way uh, that the conservative way that to, to look at this is, well, uh, Alabama's top election official said that you can't do this and like whether or not we yeah whether, whether or not you agree of that that that's a smart thing or a good thing as a matter of public policy that is the ruling of that official and therefore local jurisdictions have to respect that so i guess that's a way you could you could look at that and say again well we're not ruling on whether this is the best process or even a good process we're just ruling over whether or not uh, whether or not the secretary of state can in fact do this. And so if you look at it that way, maybe it's more of a case. I guess what puzzles me. Well, they, is, did, it, they did it four years ago. That was, you know, it, yeah. it's just this what, year. What's the argument? That, that's exactly my, I mean, what is the, I don't understand the argument for the potential harm. I, I think it's, you can make a much better argument even for things like mail-in ballots and stuff, but curbside voting, this doesn't seem to be a resource question or a fraud question. It just is incredibly puzzling to me as a matter of public policy, what the legitimate reason is to prohibit this. And that's where I think it's actually doing a lot of harm because, of course, Alabama is going to be a strong Republican state. But if you are a Republican concerned about this narrative that Republicans are trying to suppress the vote, this is exactly the sort of thing that people on the left point to and say, what other good reason could there possibly be for this? And it's sort of tough for, I think, a lot of well-meaning Republicans to say, well, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so why do this when, especially when there's going to be no electoral consequences for the Republican Party, at least none that I can see? It just it just is a real head scratcher to me. I think giving it the best view, I think you need to also tie it into that there is a real concern from many uh, on the on the on the right 
that there is fraud around all the corners, especially in this particular election. Uh, and, and I think for those who are being reasonable, even though I disagree with them, I, I, th- I think the, the, the place that they're coming from is to say, fraud is happening. It's going to happen even in an even bigger way. Millions of ballots. Again, I recognize that's not true, but I think that's the place that comes from this idea that if we don't lock down, then this will go from just being uh, something we can accuse the other party of doing to something that'll actually cost uh, a president an election. I guess maybe people don't understand what curbside voting is. They think it's some sort of weird thing where you, I don't know, turn on the Bluetooth in your phone and speak your candidates in or something. I mean, it's it, it is it seems to me it is just as resistant to fraud as regular in person walk up to the person to the usually to the little old lady, you know, in front of the table and <laughs> sign in. I mean, it's it's essentially just the car version of that. It's like saying, you know, I'm I, I totally think that McDonald's is fine, but not the drive through. The drive through is just evil and fraudulent. I mean, it's you know, it's it's I find a hard time. Then. Well, I think anyway, we need, we're going to need to anyway. turn to our, our last uh, story for the day, Mike, which is, I mean, kind of probably the one of the bigger stories that we're going to cover today which is the Google antitrust filing. Uh, On Tuesday of this week, uh, Google was hit with monopoly-related charges in the United States uh, where the Justice Department has accused it of harming competition in internet search and especially advertising. Now, there's currently no scheduled court case, but this is probably the third biggest antitrust case in American history uh, behind the breakup of Bell and then, of course, Microsoft when it began bundling Internet Explorer back when that seemed like a bad thing, uh, into Windows. Uh, and so this is something that's going to go forward. And so I just want to start, are you surprised? I was a little bit surprised by the timing of the suit, to be real honest. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there were some people in the Department of Justice who felt that they weren't quite ready to announce that. But I think there's certainly some potential political mileage to get out of that because there are plenty of people on the right who believe that, you know, big tech is biased. So that is more of a, I think, a social media thing than a Google sort of thing. But maybe they're hoping people don't, you know, think about the difference between that. But yeah, I, I And of I guess, course, in this case, it's not about the prioritization or that. It's specifically about their monopoly right. on advertising and search. So, you know, even those kinds of concerns, if you thought that what was coming to the top was in some way uh, being manipulated perfect, uh, purposefully by, uh, algorithm, <laughs> via an algorithm, yeah. uh, that, that's actually not what the court here is, is suing. Or excuse me, that is not what the department's suing about. Right, right. It's about those deals with various companies uh, that they they argue uh, put Google in a place where they control something like eighty eight percent of the search engine market. And the biggest one, and you know, this had to be just like a stake to your heart, Trey, was you know with Apple. Something like I heard uh, reports that somewhere around maybe twenty percent of Apple's gross revenue comes from Google for payments to make. Yeah, to make Google the default search engine on Siri and and all of their products, and so uh, so I, I know that's I know that's tough, but uh, <laughs> I, I I think there's I think there's really something to this, and because you know traditionally the view of antitrust is uh, we want to make sure that there aren't monopolies because what ends up happening is consumers end up paying higher prices, and Google's response is hey free, yeah, but. <laughs> And that's traditional. That's sort of the traditional, at least since the 70s, understanding of antitrust. But there's a 
broader understanding of it, and this isn't clearly uh, mentioned, this isn't clearly stated in the law, but an older understanding as well, that's part of it. But another reason why monopolies are bad is because they stifle competition and innovation. And so, for instance, Google search may not get much better, at least better as quickly, because they don't have to worry about competition, that sort of thing. And, And I think there's a lot more to that argument. And I believe that that's a, that's a much stronger case, certainly, than, you know, you can't argue with free. Right. And but in the end, I don't know how much is going to come of it simply because, I mean, Google's resources are just are they dwarf the, the resources of the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. So when this is potentially settled three, four or five years down the line, I think there might be a, there might be a fine or some minor kind of structural things, but they're not going to get nearly relief that they're, that they're seeking, which I, which I think is unfortunate. Well, and likewise on this coming from a slightly different perspective, in the same way that by the time the case with Microsoft had uh, come down, the technology and what was happened was fundamentally different. (laughs) Um, And so I think one of the things here is I think that hitting Google is probably in some ways would have been a more effective to have happened, even for the reasons you're putting forward, Mike, sooner. Uh, I, I think I think they they're kind of attacking it after the the um, the cow, you know, they're locking the barn door after yeah. the cows out uh, because and I mean, and this is one where I'm even kind of I, I am literally putting my money where my mouth is. I don't own Google, any Google, but I do own some other tech stocks because I don't think that they are on the front of where there's going to be a lot of money in the future. Uh, I think if you're seriously talking about the future when it comes to monopoly, you really need to be looking at Amazon. Uh, so not to say that I don't think that was something that potentially happened with Google in the past, but by the time this litigates its way through, I, I think the idea that people are going to be continuing in a major way, um, in a post-screen keyboard kind of way, to be relying primarily on uh, on Google, I, I, I think it's just another example of where sometimes government is simply too slow in potentially responding to the, even the kind of potential threats that you're talking about here. I'm curious what you think about that, actually. Well, I, I actually disagree with you on that. I think that, you know, as we move post screen for a lot of people, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, Siri or Google Assistant or something like that, those queries have to go somewhere. Oh, you forgot Alexa. I think, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess I did. Yeah. Um, so but but I think that I think that that is that is going to be a concern moving uh moving forward and i mean i think i maybe have more privacy concerns just in general than than your average person not because i'm doing anything particularly you know risque or risky or you know but 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 i think that people don't won't appreciate what their privacy is worth until so much of it is gone and now on that so we agree deeply yeah yes yes i so I, I think it's easy in the short term I think it is a wrong market decision to say that I'd rather have free over privacy. And and in that, as a matter of fact, if that was more what this case was about, I think there could be, I'd have a little bit more, even more sympathy for it. Well, uh, Mike, we're kind of coming near the end of the show. And so one of the things that we always try to get to is what do we recommend or what, what we used to call what was what we're reading, but anymore, it's what we recommend. Uh, and so Ken, he always has the most offbeat, <laughs> but I have to then go look at yeah. its stuff. You know, I don't think we've done one. Re- I mean, we haven't done a show together in a long time. So I'm really curious. What is it that you recommend or that you're reading? 
I'm going to go really weird and different this week. Oh, I've so been you're channeling Ken. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So I'm going to recommend a product as opposed to a book or any kind of thing, intellectual thing. It's actually a watch because, yeah, well, as when all this COVID started, I, as kind of a release mechanism, I sort of got into learning about watches and, and, and pocket knives and, and, just as a kind of a fun little release of kind of YouTube communities and that sort of thing. And, and I came across this watch called the, the Vostok Amphibian. And this is from a Russian company. Um, they, they actually started, it's kind of a neat story. This is why I, I'm interested in it. They started making, they wanted to make dive watches in the 1960s because they wanted their troops, right? The Soviet troops to have non-Swiss dive watches. But the problem was that their factories were awful. They didn't have any kind of decent equipment. And so they had to figure out how to make reliable dive watches with Soviet era junky equipment. And so they came up with all these fascinating technical ways to use what they had to make a dependable, reliable dive watch that was just dead simple to make and really cheap. And it, it's just ugly as sin in a beautiful way and, and, and i love it i got mine direct from moscow on ebay for about 73 dollars and 55 cents uh the box was covered literally covered with russian stamps it was the weirdest <laughs> funkiest thing and the, the version they make like 10 million versions the version i got was actually called the zizu because it's the version that uh the 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 character that played by Bill Murray wore in the 2004 movie, uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And so uh, it's just kind of a, I look down at my wrist and it reminds me, uh, reminds me to not take life too seriously and that there can be fun, cheap, you know, weird little things in the world. And, and I've always kind of felt that I have sort of a Russian soul. So when I'm reading, you know, like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, I can look down at my $73.55 Vostok watch, which has a big ship's wheel on it and a big anchor on it. And it's just the tackiest thing in the world. And it makes me feel a little bit better about life. So you know, for that's my just a minute, I was going to say, has he been reading GQ? You know, like, well, where is he going with the <laughs> This is not a GQ watch. No, no, not at all. Not at all, man. No, my only my week? only question about that though is, do you ever worry that there's like, hey, Putin, and suddenly he'll he'll start talking to you? Through your watch? <laughs> Thankfully, it's a mechanical watch. Even if there were that technology, I would think that it would probably be defective. So oh, okay. you know, <laughs> I was just thinking you're, you're gonna you're gonna head into a polling booth and you're gonna have your watch on, and suddenly like the Putin thing. <laughs> So. Yeah, what if if you see me start start taking very pro-Russia stances on things, you'll know that the watch is infecting my bloodstream with some sort of nanobots or something like that. I don't know. See, that, that's such, so mine is not nearly as uh, offbeat as that. Uh, so I think, as you know, Mike, because we've talked about this before, but I, in normal time, when I when I, when I'm not recovering from things, uh, I'm very much a long distance runner, a hiker. I love being out on trails. I love being outside. And when I can't do that, uh, you know, I do what every good bibliophile does, and I read about that. And there was this recent book by Brian Cornell, and he's not any big, you know, he's not going for any fastest known times or anything like that, uh, but he has this book called Divided, A Walk on the Continental Divide Trail. It's one of the three major uh, north-south uh, long hiking trails. And it actually goes from uh, Mexico all the way to the Mexican border, all the way to the Canadian border through uh, Colorado and the Rocky Mountains and a couple of deserts along the way. And it's just him kind of talking about 
the kind of meditative experience and the things that he had and thought about as he was doing that. And, and I tend towards kind of the, cool. you know, the jurics, you know, who went the fastest. And that's cool, too. This is a totally different take on that. And he's actually, you know, sometimes you read these books by individuals and you think, ah, that was interesting, but you're just not a great writer. He is, a, uh-huh. <laughs> he, he is a better than average writer. So it makes it work. Like you really want to continue to turn the pages, even if you're not a, a CDT fan. Um, and so I'm highly recommending Brian Cornell's Divided, A Walk on the Continental Divide Trail. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank everybody for listening to The Politic Guys. All of my, the hosts, I know, Mike, you're, you're, uh, you concluded. We do love working on this show. It's something that we just each connect with. It's something a little different. Um, before we started the show, Mike and I, you know, we were talking a little bit about our days and things, and this is a fun part of it, actually. Uh, and it to make that possible, it takes the support of amazing listeners like you and like Billy that you were mentioning at the beginning of the show, who's willing to support. And so one of the ways that you can help the sh- uh, show, though, is that you can actually subscribe to the Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. Uh, so does sharing episodes. That's just a really great way. Uh, for others to find out about the politics guys. But just like Billy, we need your support. So one of the great things about being a supporter is you're going to get access to all kind of really cool supporters only content. Uh, And that includes our full length supporters uh, Wednesday show. And uh, Mike and I, we're going to be taking this on in just a minute. And if you're interested in that, the thing we're going to lead with is my election predictions. So if you want to know some more election predictions, you need to be a supporter. Uh, and we also have some another cool one, and uh, we were talking about this at the beginning of the show, and that is our new Discord channel for supporters only. So if you'd like to gain access to talk with Jay and Mike and myself and others, uh, you can gain access to Discord by becoming a supporter. So if you want to become a supporter, or you just want to check out more of the really cool benefits of supporting the politics, guys, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics, guys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. So join me and Mike again as we talk about including my predictions by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Nathan Salznowski, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkinson. Today's show was produced by me, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.